Hey everyone, just a few quick warnings about this episode. The film we're discussing today does cover some heavy topics, including sexual assault. And additionally, because this is the follow up film to the first two seasons of Twin Peaks, we are going to be diving into some spoilers for the show. We will not be spoiling any of season three. This is purely the movie and how it connects to the first two seasons of the show. And with that, Hello and welcome to Valley West Cinemas. I'm your host Aaron and this is normally the podcast where we take a group of related films and eliminate all but three, but instead what we're doing today is what I'm calling a spotlight review. We're taking one film, in this case it is Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, and we're going to discuss, review, analyze, critique all the good things that come with a film that we love, or at least I love. Today I'm joined by Nikki. Hello Nikki. Hi. So the obvious question is why are we doing this? I've always wanted to do spotlight reviews. I I wanted to take movies like Dick Tracy or Gremlins 2 or Bill and Ted and focus just on that one movie instead of eliminating a bunch of connected films. Just talk about one movie that we love. And over the course of the year that we've been doing the show, we've just never gotten around to it. And so I decided, let's finally do one. This film, Twin Peaks Firewalk With Me, was selected because I love the film. I love the show. It's one of my all-time favorite shows. Recently, I've subjected Nikki to watching Twin Peaks because she had never seen it. She still has not seen season three, so no spoilers. She just recently finished season two and then watched the film. And so we're going to discuss Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me. So with that, Nikki, the very first thing I'm going to dive right into is, did you like the movie? I did like it. I spent like the last month and a half of my life watching Twin Peaks. So it was nice to finally learn about the crime because the movie, you know, takes place before the seasons. Being able to see all of the details and understand exactly what was happening to lead up to the actual series was interesting. Yeah, once you know what happened, because the show Twin Peaks, as most people, if you're listening to this episode, I am certain you know, Twin Peaks began with who killed Laura Palmer, who killed the homecoming queen. And this film came out after the show was canceled because when the show came out, It burned so brightly. It was huge. Magazine covers, all the cast got movie deals. The show was so influential that the creators of X-Files Lost, Breaking Bad, have all credited Twin Peaks for influencing their writing and their careers. It really changed how we viewed television and what could be done on regular television. But season two disappointed a lot of people because David Lynch, he didn't want to solve the mystery. And he was forced to. And the audience just sort of disappeared after that. And so the show got canceled. It only ran from 1990 to 1991. Resulting from that is this film. It's sort of an answer to that disappointment. It was only a year later in 92 when Fire Walk With Me came out. And it itself was a huge disappointment. It was a box office failure. Nobody liked it. It was hated. In fact, when I saw it, and granted I was a child, but when I saw it, I hated it. You didn't tell me any of this. Why would I? We're talking about it now. (laughs) Save it for the show. <laughs> it was a huge failure. Massive failure. It made like two and a half million. Some some crazy low number. The reason the fans hated it, season two ends on a cliffhanger and people expected the movie to answer that cliffhanger and it didn't. Instead, David Lynch went back in time to the last week in the life of Laura Palmer, the character whose murder sets up the entire show. So in a sense, it wasn't very satisfactory if you wanted a continuation of the show. And over time... The movie has gone from being hated to being considered one of the better American films of the last couple decades. If you're expecting the show, it doesn't really feel like the show, right? No, it doesn't. One thing people have said about it is that it's one of the few movies to truly make you feel like you're living someone else's life. 
it's not a happy film. You're not going to necessarily enjoy watching it because it's fairly miserable in that regard. I almost cried multiple times. Really? Multiple scenes made me want to cry. And you really get to feel Laura's emotions. You see her, like the way she treats, and by the way, we're just going to name drop characters. I assume you've seen the show. <laughs> if you know, if you're listening, you probably know what we're talking about. The way she treats James like a puppy in the scene when, when she takes off the towel, and the way that she berates Bobby and then smiles and immediately turns flirtatious. You watch her go through all these emotions constantly to where you know just by looking at her without even saying anything, you know what she's feeling, and it's complicated. Well, she has difficulty holding relationships, I think, obviously, because of the trauma she's been in. She pushes people away. She was laying on the couch with Bobby, and he was trying to make out with her, and she was crying and just wanted Coke. Yeah. And he was actually like, he felt bad. He's like, you really don't like me. Like, you just want the drugs. And mm -hmm. she started crying, and he gave her the drugs, and she smiled. And that scene specifically is after... The second confirmation that Bob is her dad, Leland, and that's the sensitive subject we need to touch upon. Laura is sexually assaulted by, to her, an unknown man named Bob from the age of 12 to 17, the age she's supposed to be on the show. She discovers that Bob is actually her dad. Earlier in the movie, she sees her dad coming out of the house, and that's when she has the realization. But then later on, when Bob assaults her and mid-scene changes into her dad, that's when she truly knows that it's her father. And after that, you see her character break. You see her crying in school. You see the scene with her and Bobby on the couch. And it's almost like, I'm not saying she's accepting her death, but I think she knows that something is done. Something is over. Well, and that was also something I wondered about. The night she died when she left James, it seemed very well that she knew she was going to die that night. Why? Maybe I'm thinking about it too much. But was it just because she knew that her dad figured it out? I don't think that she expects that she's in danger. I think it's more like a, what's the point? What is this all worth kind of attitude? You know, and also too, these characters are supposed to be teenagers. Teenage characters are often played by people in their 20s, so they don't look like actual kids. So there is a little bit of a disconnect in the movie. Cheryl Lee is a great actress, but you know, you can't play a teenager come a certain point in your life, right? Well, yeah, especially when they made the prequel after the series, the seasons. So it's been two years. Yeah. You didn't tell me that it bombed. Oh, it bombed hard. You didn't tell like, me that. Nobody saw it. But I understand that it's because the season two ending sucked so bad. But I didn't have to wait for the movie. And I didn't have to go through that stress of not knowing that it wasn't going to be answered. And then being upset when that answer wasn't given. Were you disappointed in the number of characters from the show uh, that weren't in the movie? Not really. I talked to you about that as well because I asked about the sheriff. You yeah. were like, well, I mean, she wasn't dead yet. There was no crime. So right. Why would Sheriff Truman be involved in Laura Palmer's life in the week before? Yeah. yeah. I mean, they all knew her. And a lot of these characters are in what's called the missing pieces, the 90 minutes of collected deleted scenes. The movie does not have Pete, Josie, Catherine, Andy, Lucy, Sheriff Truman, Hawk. Ben, any of the horns. Any of the horns, Audrey. Yeah. Most of those characters are in the deleted scenes, and it feels like what was cut from the original, what is said to be five-hour version, most of what was cut was essentially the show. People and places and characters from the show. And the movie is centrally focused on Laura, which makes sense, with the exception of this weird sort of 36-minute mini-episode that the movie starts with. Yeah, and you tell me that's important, but... 
<laughs> I right, because you haven't own. seen season three yet. Right. Yeah. Uh, let's dive right in then to the movie. I'm going to laugh at you and I'm going to put this in the show. I'm sorry, but you didn't get the metaphor when the, the movie begins with a television getting smashed. Oh. It's the very first shot of the movie and you didn't understand the connection between David Lynch being disappointed with his show getting canceled and his movie opening with a television getting destroyed. I mean, that's right off the bat. Like, <laughs> I didn't know I'd have to be thinking that hard right off the bat. Am I supposed to be paying attention already? <laughs> right now. <laughs> it begins with... Agents Chet Desmond and Sam Stanley is what you're you're nodding at me. Okay, Sam. I forgot Sam's name. Anyway, uh, it starts with them invest- investigating the death of Teresa Banks, who is referenced on the show. And on the show, Cooper says he investigated it. But they do show him investigating the disappearance of Chet Desmond, which we'll touch on. And we meet David Lynch playing Gordon Cole, who's awesome. Chet Desmond and Sam and Gordon meet Lil, who is this redhead dancing woman at the airport. The really weird David Lynchian things were hinted at in the show. But in the movie, once you meet Lil and it's this weird thing with all this hidden meaning, that's when I was, granted, again, very young when I saw it, that's when I was kind of lost, like, is this Twin Peaks? Like, what is going on here? I don't understand this. It's almost like diving in too far right off the bat. Now, of course, I love it, whatever. But my initial, you know, 12-year-old self when I saw this movie. But I love Lil now. Lil is, is, is a hoot. Were you in the theater by yourself? I may have been. I may. Was have been. it rated R? It's definitely rated R. Anyway, I, I didn't understand Lil. Yeah, you and said I know that I told you that. Yeah. yeah, I I don't get it. And I think you said something about you know maybe they weren't allowed to communicate. It was because all code because every they little didn't. movement meant something. Yeah, and anybody could have been watching. And basically, the whole point was to say that they were going to have trouble with the local authorities, and maybe somebody representing the local authorities could have seen all that. Well, yeah, because they did end up being really big jerks. So. Yeah, when when they go to Deer Meadow, where Teresa Banks' body is, it's like the uh, anti-Lucy and anti-Deputy Andy. You know, they go to the sheriff's station where they don't offer coffee, because coffee represents kindness in Twin Peaks. If you offer coffee, you're a good person. But they don't offer coffee. They're not helpful to the investigation. I don't know why, other than just to make it not Twin Peaks. Like, hey, this is some other place. Twin Peaks is this amazing place with kind people, but the rest of the world is awful. No, because they were awful people in Twin Peaks. I mean, kind of. Not kind of. Like, almost all of them were awful Uh, in their own way. Everybody was sleeping with everybody. It seemed like a really nice town. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Let me ask you, did you like Chris Isaac as Agent Chet Desmond? Well, I love Chris Isaac, period. But I mean, as far as you're going into Twin Peaks, the movie, and it starts with not Agent Cooper. Well, yeah, no, it didn't make sense to me at all. Didn't Cooper say he investigated Teresa Banks? And then right. all of a sudden, he was nowhere to be seen in the investigation, like as soon as it started. So it was confusing to me. But I did like looking at Chris Isaac. So. Oh, my God. Well, I, I like <laughs> Chris Isaac and Kiefer Sutherland. He played Sam Stanley. The explanation, as I understand it, is that Kyle McLaughlin did not want to be typecast. And so coming right off the show, he didn't want his involvement to be as large. And so they had to replace him with other actors. I had asked you this, though. Do you think it was Chet Desmond or Sam Stanley that that was meant to be Agent Cooper? Because performance-wise, Kiefer Sutherland acts more like Cooper than Chris Isaac does. Yeah, but Chet was in charge. True. But Sam's still an agent, though. Yeah, but Chet had the assertiveness. Like, he was the one that got into anti-Deputy Andy's face. Yeah, and I can't picture Cooper grabbing someone's nose, though. Oh, that's true. And basically threatening a secretary to make coffee. But Sam was counting how much the office furniture costs. When they go to Haps, when they first go to that diner, and they talk to the the old man where they're they're trying to repair that lamp that's flashing, because again, electricity, just like when Cooper saw Laura's body the first time that lamp was flashing, 
when they go to Haps and after they talk to him, Sam is the one that thanks him. Chris Isaac just turns around and leaves. And Cooper is so kind. I, I can see Cooper being the one to stay there and, and thank him. Is this something that is a standard theory about this movie or something that you thought of? In all of the Twin Peaks circles, like podcasts and interviews and such, the assumption seems to always be that Chris Isaac, that Chet Desmond, was meant to be Cooper. So this might be just me. But I agree. Definitely there are ways that Sam was more like Cooper. Mm-hmm. So they go to Haps, which is like the anti-Double R diner. Instead of Norma, they have Irene, who I like Irene, even though she doesn't have any specials, right? Yeah. Yeah. What did you think or interpret as far as when she explained that Teresa Banks's left arm went dead for a couple days? I mean, it's clearly related to the guy with no arm. Cooper went to grab the blinds in the sheriff's office and his hand was shaking. And Pete's hand on the show. Pete's hand when he was at the airport with Audrey, his hand started shaking as well. I don't think the connection is that Mike cut off his arm and the arm became the man from the other place. I think it's the ring. The ring is on the left hand. I think it's the ring that's the connection. But who's wearing the ring that's making their hands shake and arms go numb? This is where I can't really tell you because I don't want to get into season three stuff. So then I can't answer your question. No, I want to know your interpretation. Like, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, we've seen and it's been made clear in other scenes that... The energy that is Bob and Mike can enter different people, right? Mm -hmm. At any time. So from my understanding, they feed on trauma, sadness. Pain and sorrow, the Garmin Bosia, the the creamed corn. So if somebody doesn't have that, right, they're Mm. not going to be interested in that person, right? Well, yes and no. They can always cause the pain and suffering. True. The thing I always tell you when we watch the show is, even though there is often a meaning the first thing you should always do with David Lynch stuff is to take it literally. And so in this case, what is the ring? Well, I guess I'll ask you that. What is the ring? I mean, does it contain the energy? I I don't know. I would say it's more of a marker or connective item to the entities, to at least the Red Room, if not the Black Lodge. So kind of like a... Like a conduit. Yes, that's the word. Right. We'll jump around a bit. But in the film, Cooper tells Laura not to take the ring, but Mike at the end, very desperately throws it to her. The problem is that Laura, at least in my interpretation, is a doomed character. And so putting on the ring saves her from Bob. But because of that, she's killed. And so she's doomed either way. Cooper is trying to save her life. So he says, don't take the ring. If she didn't take the ring, Bob would possess her. But do you think she knew that at that moment? Um, And if so, how? Well, that's one of those things. I think she knew. And I don't think there's an explanation for how. But (laughs) back to the other thing about the arm going dead. If the ring is some sort of connective conduit to the Red Room or the Black Lodge, to me, I think the idea is that the people whose arm shakes or goes numb or goes dead have some sort of spiritual connection to the Black Lodge or the Red Room. We know Cooper does. We've seen the show. We know Teresa Banks does because she had the ring and she dies. I can't explain why Pete's hand would tremble, though. To me, it's like it's a symptom of the Lodge. It's a symptom of the entities in some regard. I don't have a specific answer. The only connection to Pete I can think of is that he found Laura. But even still, I think, that's, I think that's stretching. I would not bet money on that. Well, and did he actually see Josie in the hotel wall or is he just psycho? Well, but that's, see that, ooh, ah, I didn't even think of that. Oh my God, I'm so glad you said that. Yeah, so later in season two, he's talking to the wall saying, Josie, is that you? Or some line like that because Josie turned into a drawer pool. Or a, a drawer knob. Which totally makes sense. Yeah, sure. She's in the lodge now. And <laughs> later on in the, in the show, one time Pete is looking up at a wall. And it's while two other characters are talking and walking by. It's a very brief thing. 
maybe Pete does have a, a bit of a gift. I don't know. But still, that's one of the great things about Twin Peaks is that I'm sure the answer is in there. There are things we can point at and say, this is why, this is why. But I don't know. I, just, I don't know what the answer is. But that makes it fun. That's why we're here. That's why we're doing this. So they meet Carl, who is awesome, at the Fat Trout trailer park. I love Carl. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he offers them coffee. Coffee means he's a good person. When they see the old lady with the dirt on her and like an ice pack or something on her forehead, and she just sort of appears and then walks away, you see Carl change. You see him emotionally shift, and he looks like he's going to start crying. He says, I've already gone places. I just want to stay where I am. What's your best guess as far as what just happened? I have no idea. And I think I said that to you as soon as that lady left and he said that. I said, I have no idea what just happened. Like, I don't, I don't get it. Guess. Like, we- <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> no, seriously. Like, I can't. <laughs> like, she showed up. It was literally four seconds and then she left. And there was no other word about her. Like, who was she? Why was she there? Uh, other than, you know, nosy neighbors. Mm-hmm. Or, I mean, did Teresa just touch everybody there, you know? That's actually a really good point because in the show Twin Peaks, both Laura and Cooper have an effect on this town. Even though, yes, you've said there are bad people and there were bad things. There's a whole drug trade going on and high schoolers were being groomed for this essentially a... Brothel. Brothel. There we go. That's the nice word. But everyone seemed pretty happy, I guess. I don't know. But Laura, for good or bad touched everyone in this town. Her death impacted everyone, and she seemed to be somehow related to everybody, even in just the slightest, simplest ways. Maybe Teresa Banks had a similar effect, but because she was in Deer Meadow, it wasn't necessarily for the better. How so? What do you mean? Well, I have no idea because they don't really cover that. Yeah. Irene says that Teresa Banks only worked at HAPS for like a month, but Teresa Banks is in Flesh World. She's clearly established. She knows Laura. She knows Ronette Pulaski. And yet... Deer Meadow treats her like a stranger. What we know of her, she doesn't seem like she was just passing through. Well, yeah, that's what confused me was the lady in the restaurant without specials. She said specifically that Teresa was a loner, didn't know anybody, didn't have anybody. I think it's because Deer Meadow is like the anti-Twin Peaks. What happens when you put someone in an environment that doesn't support their natural glow, so to speak? Like Laura's a beacon even though she had her issues, and Teresa Banks maybe could have been, but because we see what Deer Meadow is like, maybe she just had the worst of it. Yeah. I don't know. But they go to Carl. Carl has a very emotional moment when he sees that woman. I have theories about it, but I can't tell you. Because. Season three. Yeah. Yeah. But when Chet Desmond sees the light pole, the electricity makes that sound that the man from the other place makes. Does that mean anything to you? I mean, this whole thing is confusing. (laughs) Does that mean, like, is there only one place in the world where you can get to this red room or this black lodge? Or is there a portal, quote unquote, in Deer Meadow? Is that what it's called? Deer Meadow. As well. I think it's just proximity to Teresa Banks because she had the ring. So obviously the evil was interested in her and Bob killed her. And they found the ring under that They found the ring and Chet Desmond reaches for the ring and disappears seemingly. But Chet Desmond does disappear. It's a little odd. We are introduced to Cooper with not much ceremony. He just walks into a room and says, hey, Gordon, I had a dream. And then we meet (laughs) David Bowie. David Bowie. (laughs) David Bowie comes in with an amazing Tim Curry as Gabriel Knight kind of Southern accent. And he points at Cooper and says, who do you think this is there? Cooper turns to Gordon and he looks almost panicked. He says, Gordon, 
Like that's his response to Philip Jeffrey saying, who do you think this is? And when we watched it, you said to me, but this is before the Red Room. Yeah. What do you think about David Bowie and Philip Jeffries and that whole scene? I'm confused as heck. Hell. <laughs> I'm confused as hell. I'm sorry. I'm holding on to the hope that it will be explained to me in season three. No, 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 no. Imagine it's 1992. And as far as you know, that is the last of Twin Peaks you will ever see. The show got canceled. The movie bombed. Yeah. You, you don't know that 25 years later, there's another season. What does that scene mean? What if he was Bob the whole time? I don't know. Why else would David Bowie, Philip Jeffries look at him and be like, who is this? Like, what other answer is there? At the end of season two, Cooper's doppelganger leaves the red room possessed by Bob. So it's not real Cooper possessed by Bob. It's doppelganger Cooper possessed by Bob. Yeah. Well, the timeline is messed up in that movie anyway. It jumps back and forth. Right. Yeah. The movie isn't completely a prequel. There is some of the aftermath too as well. You see Cooper in the red room. Annie shows up Annie. in Laura's bed. And Annie is way after. Annie's a whole year later. But Annie shows up in Laura's bed and says, I'm in the room with Dale. Write it in your diary. I have a note about that. You do? Because I don't remember them saying in season one that that was in her diary anywhere. Well, there are nine pages missing from her diary. But isn't that where we learned in the movie that it was Leland that took it? In the movie, in the scene where she finds out that her diary pages are missing and mm -hmm. she goes home and sees Leland there behind mm -hmm. her, he says to her when he's killing her that he took the diary pages and he has them in his hands. Well, I believe as of season two, I think they found four of them by the train tracks or something like that. I might be misremembering that, but there are still pages missing. Do we find out where they are in season three? Yes. Okay, cool. Just like the ring and the arm thing, I think people who are connected to the Red Room perhaps are always connected to the Red Room because clearly Annie isn't dead yet. And yet a dead-ish, well, Annie doesn't really die in the show. She comes out of the room and is like comatose. The beaten and bloodied Annie shows up in Laura's bed in a vision more than a year before that even happens to her. Well, I, mean, I don't I, like time jumps. Like, I don't, it confuses me. Like, well, it's not a time jump per se. Well, no, it's a person from the future showing up in her bed next to her. <laughs> it's frustrating because it's how? <laughs> That's the question. All right. So, so here we are. We have two examples. We have Philip Jeffries pointing at Cooper saying, who do you think this is there? And we have Annie showing up in Laura's bed. Yeah, the timing is stupid and they stupid. don't. Stupid? They don't explain it. So it's. But that's the thing, that's the great thing about David Lynch and a lot of his things is that if you're looking at an abstract painting, what it means to you cannot be told. You have to determine what it means to you. Yeah. David Lynch does a lot of weird stuff, but all of the answers, at least to him, are there. That's why it's usually easier to just start with a literal interpretation like Jacoby's 3D glasses. Those have a meaning. They don't call it out in the show, but they do. It has a meaning that you can draw from it. Which is? Well, what do you think? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> my, here's the thing. My interpretations are not answers. They're my interpretations. I can tell you what a painting means to me, but that doesn't mean that it's right or that you would feel the same way. So what do you think Jacoby's 3D glasses mean? Is that like he sees the world in so many colors because he's such a hippie? <laughs> I mean, like <laughs> sure. That's probably not bad, but... I don't know. Everything stands out to him. He sees everything. like In its most literal sense... An image that is meant for 3D is usually a mixture of colors or blurry. 3D glasses let you see the true image, what's hidden. So if you wear 3D glasses like Jacoby does, that means 
He sees things for what they really are. David Lynch gives you what you need, but doesn't call it out, doesn't tell you you're right. And some of the details are just one line, one word, one little thing, but he gives you everything you need to at least have a educated guess. Because Jacoby's a smart guy. You were super suspicious of him in the show. For for the first like four episodes, you thought he was the killer. Mm -hmm. Everything he does or says, as quirky as he is, he's right. So David Bowie, do you want to say anything, anything else about David Bowie? I mean, he's beautiful. And he says, we're not going to talk about Judy. Who, who the hell is Judy? I don't know. <laughs> do I? Do I know? Shut up. <laughs> we're not going to talk about Judy. Cooper goes back to where Chet Desmond disappears. He learned there was a trailer with an old lady and her grandson named Chalfont. And the people who lived there before were also named Chalfont. But we know the old lady and her grandson from the Meals on Wheels from the show to be known as Tremond. But apparently they lived near Teresa Banks and they disappeared with their trailer when Teresa Banks died. Given what you see later in the movie with the old lady and her grandson where they give Laura that picture to hang up and their proximity to Teresa Banks, what is your interpretation of the Tremont slash Chalfont family? I mean, don't we see them in the Red Room too? Not the Red Room. We see them in the room above the convenience store. We see them in the room with the arm and Bob. Oh, that like meeting they're having mm-hmm. yeah the meeting that david bowie makes a reference to yeah yeah they're having a meeting mm-hmm. so i mean obviously they're part of something to do mm-hmm. with bob and mike right, right. and that energy mm-hmm. entities or some sort so i mean what if it's just to stay close to the person that on the show when donna brought the meals on wheels the old lady became very upset that there was creamed corn she didn't want the creamed corn which in the show is garmabosia which is the pain and sorrow that they eat Or in the movie, they show that. So she didn't want it. So she is in the meeting, but she doesn't want the cream corn. She doesn't want the pain and sorrow. Yeah. And she's like, she's helpful to Laura, kind of. She she talks to her in the parking lot. Remember? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And she gives her the painting or the the photo of the doorway. Yeah. I don't know. I think she was, was she helpful? I don't know. I don't know because that door seems to be a point of access, right? Because Laura sees herself in the picture. Arguably, that doorway is a connection to the red room. You see curtains. When the, when the camera goes through the doorway. Yeah. The term I used before is a chaotic neutral, where she's not really good or bad, but kind of an instrument of chaos. The old lady and her grandson, they don't do anything to anybody in the show or the movie, except give that photo to Laura. That's the only thing they do, which itself isn't a terrible action, but they're there. They're part of it. They're an entity. They're near, they live near Teresa Banks. I wish they touched on how long Laura was doing Meals on Wheels. Do we know, did the lady and her son, like, when did they arrive in when did they Twin live? Peaks? Yeah. Like, did they leave directly after Teresa Banks' murder to go to Twin Peaks? In the show Twin Peaks, each day, at least in season one, it seems like every episode covers a day in the time. By the time Donna goes to visit the Tremons, it's only been a couple days. And so within a few days of Laura's death, they're not there anymore. But I don't know how long they were there. They imply on the show that Bob may have taken over Leland as far back as when he was, you know, 10, maybe. Bob may have been there the whole time. So they may have been there the whole time. Who knows? Let's go and talk about that real quick. I know you have opinions that don't necessarily <laughs> line up with mine. But the question of is it Leland or Bob when things are happening, when Laura is being sexually assaulted, when the murders occur... How much is Leland and how much is Bob? I think Leland only has sort of a passing awareness of something not quite being right. Like just like a bad feeling or deja vu. I don't think he has any genuine awareness because Bob 
when he's arrested, Bob says as Leland, watch him when I make him remember. So Bob is hiding things from him. Like in the movie, Leland, Leland goes to prostitutes. I think that's him. I don't think that's Bob. When Leland kills Jacques Renault in the hospital, I think that's Leland. That's not Bob. In the train car, when Leland is about to kill Laura, he says, I always thought you knew it was me. And he says it, you see on the screen, it's, it's the actor, it's Ray Wise, it's, it's, it's Leland, but I still think it's Bob talking when he says that. I don't. I don't think Leland knew. Like when he's drugging Sarah with potentially heroin, I don't know. She sees a white horse. Does that mean heroin? I don't know. But when he's drugging Sarah, that's Bob. In the family dynamic, I think it's pretty obvious when it's him and when it's Bob. But in all of the family scenes that they show in the Palmer house in the movie, they're all tense. So unless it was just that last week where he was Bob like every single day. So I would have to go back to think about season one, which when you do that, there are scenes where he's crying and he's torn up about her death. But the killing of Jacques Renault, I think that could have been Bob because of the night that Laura died. Bob slash Leland looked through that cabin window and saw Laura and Jacques Renault. Mm. So you think it might be jealousy, maybe? It could be. I mean, right? That could be a motivational factor if it was Bob. At that moment when they said that they found Jacques Renault, he knew where he was. The only problem for me is that that kind of confuses what Bob lets Leland remember. Because Leland has no issue with admitting that he killed Jacques Renault. But what if that was Bob? I don't think it was. Well, I don't know. That's where we agree to disagree. <laughs> Well, Leland, when he sees the drawing of Bob, when Sarah goes to, well, Andy, actually, Andy's the sketch artist. When Leland sees the picture of Bob, he goes to the police. And I don't think Bob would let that happen. I think that was Leland in control. Why would Leland go to the police with a picture of Bob and say, I know who this is. I know where he was. The question for me then would be, at which point do other people see Bob? At which point do other people see Leland? If you're going to say that sitting at that table and him yelling at Laura and being a horrible father to her is Bob, then why don't they see Bob? Well, Bob doesn't make himself visible other than the occasional glances that Sarah has. Like she has brief visions of him. Other than that, only Laura sees Bob as Bob. Well, same scenario, same question then. Laura was sitting at that table too, you know. Bob chooses when to let people see him. And he is at his purest when he is assaulting Laura. He wants that pain and sorrow. That's when the real Bob comes out. At the dinner table, when Leland is going after Laura for having dirt under her nails, that really tense scene, like you just see the absolute fear in her face. Like she is petrified the way she's crying and the way Sarah is just sitting there like saying, Leland, stop it. And you can tell that this has been going on with this family for years I think when she sits down, when he invites her to sit down, that's Leland. Then he sees the necklace and then he becomes Bob. That's when he starts going after her about her fingernails. It's an excuse to get close to her to look at that necklace and ask her, is this from a lover? And he's smiling. See, there's the jealousy, which is why I think Bob could have gotten jealous of Jacques Renault. Yeah, it's possible. Leland doesn't have an awareness, per se, of what Bob is doing in the scene where, in the movie, Mike revs his engine and comes at them with his car and he's screaming and holding the ring out and saying, it's your father. Leland is just revving the engine and Laura's screaming and the sound design is amazing. Like it's just... I mean, it gave me anxiety. Exactly. It yeah. Did. Yeah. It's a very tense, pounding scene. And then Leland pulls into a, a gas station or a garage 
And when they finally calm down, she asks him if he had gone home this past week in reference to the day that she saw Bob and then ran outside and saw her dad come out of the house when she realized who he really is. He says, no, I think Leland truly doesn't know that he went home because Bob went home to look for the diary. And then you see him change. You see him go, oh, yes, oh, yes, I did. That wasn't him getting caught in a lie. That was Bob letting him have that memory. I disagree. Okay, that's fine. (laughs) I think that was Bob the whole time. I mean, if it was Leland, if somebody was doing that, I'm next to my car. But he's so panicked. And then when he pulls into the garage, he yells at the mechanics. Like that's every other angry driver blaming everyone else. Because his daughter just witnessed him interact with somebody that she's not supposed to have seen. That's why when she was like, who was that? And he was like, well, I don't know. Have you met him? But I see fear on Leland's face. I don't think that's Bob. I think that's Leland. Here's a great comparison with Leland and his anger and confusion. He has missing memories. So it's kind of like dementia. The way that people with dementia become angry because they're confused. And I think that's what's happening to Leland. He doesn't remember stuff and he's becoming confused and lashing out. And so like the scene with the garage after Mike yells at them, I think that's him being confused, feeling like he should understand or recognize who Mike is. And he doesn't. And he doesn't know how to react other than to yell at other people like, it's your fault. I don't know this. It's a fair opinion. Yeah, it's fine. (laughs) Um, But that's a great scene. It is. Yeah. We have all these scenes with Laura. The movie does a great job letting us kind of live inside her life and all of the depressing things that that comes with, with everything that she goes through. But we do have a bit of a flashback scene with Cooper and Albert. Well, not a flashback, more of just a quick aside in Philadelphia, where Cooper speculates about who the next victim is going to be. And I know Albert is, is one of your favorite characters. Yes. <laughs> are you, you didn't ask me a question. <laughs> well, I, I was hoping you would lead into something. No, I do. I do love him. Are you disappointed? I know we kind of touched on this when we talked about the Twin Peaks TV show cast not being completely in the film. Are you disappointed with how little we get of Cooper? No, not necessarily, because unlike living through it as you did, I knew and was prepared to learn about Laura's last week and going into that. So I was so confused when I saw this movie. Well, yeah, but I had you. You helped. And you didn't spoil anything, but you helped me. You helped guide me to understand what was going on. She goes to Harold to hide her diary. When she says fire walk with me, her face turns to that extremely pale black lips sort of ghost kind of look. There's a shot during the murder sequence where it just shows him standing up straight, crying, like screaming. And he has the black lips and the white face. That's right. So what is that? You tell me. I don't know. (laughs) You're really bad at this. (laughs) Shut up. It can't, I mean, it can't be Bob, right? I mean, unless it's some sort of energy from the entity from the... I think it is that simple. I think it's just a connection to the entities or the lodge. When you see that on Leland, it's during a horrible sequence. Mm -hmm. When you see it on her, she's saying, fire walk with me, which is part of that poem. Hey, look, a ceiling fan. (laughs) I kept saying that to you during the show. I know. Now, do you remember my interpretation of the ceiling fan? This is going to get... Really sad. But in my opinion, as she's getting assaulted by her father, what is she looking at? She's staring up at a ceiling fan. Yeah. yeah is no, that I, what it is? I think it's that and electricity. Again, yeah. the entities like electricity or travel through it or whatever 
I think it's a representation. I don't know if metaphorical is the right word, but kind of like in the sixth sense, whenever you see the color red, that means something bad is happening or going to happen. I think that the ceiling fan is just a precursor and it could be for the reason you just said, but if they show you a ceiling fan, that means something bad is happening or mm-hmm. about to happen. Like in the movie, when she stops on the stairs looking at the ceiling fan, you hear Bob talking, you hear his narration saying something along the lines of wanting to be in her. Mm-hmm. And so maybe that was Bob reaching out through the electricity of the ceiling fan, maybe even trying to take over her. That's a question too. Kind of like, why did it take Thanos all those years to try to collect the stones himself? Mm-hmm. Why did Bob wait so long to try to take over Laura? If that's what he wants, why is he waiting? Mm-hmm. And the easy answer is, well, there's already a, a, a rich amount of pain and sorrow in this household. Why change it? Why mix it up? But Laura is getting older. She's having sex with other people now. Because before, you would assume for at least the first few teenage years, the only person she was having sex with was Bob slash her dad, Ugh. right? Now that she's having sex with James and Bobby and Jacques Renault and any other guy she meets at the roadhouse, perhaps you could say that makes it less sorrowful that her dad is doing that to her. If he isn't getting fed, if Bob isn't getting fed this pain and sorrow because it's just not as painful anymore, now it's time to move on to the next one. When she saw his face as it was happening, he's assaulting her and that's when she holds his face and she's like, who are you? And then she finally sees her dad instead of Bob. Do you think it was Bob on purpose? What do you mean? Bob showed her Leland to make it more painful. No. Oh, I think that's true, actually. I thought you were going there. No, I wasn't. If all these years, now granted, this is going to be a very insensitive phrasing, but if all the years of being raped are not as painful anymore because she is now moving on to having regular sex with other people, Bob could get a lot more pain and sorrow out of her if he lets her know by telling her or letting her see that it's her dad. That's going to unlock a lot of hurtful, terrible emotions. I mean, and that's, I guess that's true because at the end, didn't he say, Bob said to her, like, I thought you always knew it was him, right? Well, if that was Bob, I say it's Bob. You say it might have been Leland saying that. No, they both said it. When Leland visually, like on screen, yeah, it looks like Leland. But when he says, I always thought you knew it was me, I think that's Bob talking. I think Bob is disappointed. Yeah, but no, then Bob is on the other side of her and says something to her as well. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't think, I do not believe Leland knows that he is doing that to his daughter. Agree to disagree. I think his sorrow is real. Like in season one, when he is singing and crying and falling on the coffin, the coffin is broken. The machine that lowers the coffin is broken. And it's okay. Leland is laying on top of Laura and it's going up and down. It's so messed up. Yeah. All of Leland's suffering and sorrow in season one, because again, Bob feeds on that. I think it's real. They want Leland and Sarah to be miserable. I see. Yeah. No, I understand. Cheryl Lee, the actress that plays Laura Palmer. What do you think of her? I think she's gorgeous. Well, I didn't mean physically. I mean (laughs) as an actress. Because in season one, she plays a dead body. And then she plays Maddie, who is the sort of, I don't want to say false. The character isn't false. But she's putting on a voice. She's playing timid. She's not playing Laura Palmer. And you don't really see her as Laura Palmer really at all until the movie. Because she's, you know, a corpse. What did you think of her as Laura Palmer in the film? She did it well. I mean, we're talking about the actress. Yes, like, the, the performance. Did she get an Oscar? Is that what it's called? Oh, oh my God. <laughs> Don't. You can cut that. What okay. is it called? <laughs> an Academy Award or an Oscar, yeah. <laughs> did she get an Oscar? No. She, no, no. No, because the movie bombed, right? Well, okay. Bomb does not mean bad, although most people thought it was bad. 
No, this movie received next to no award nominations. I don't know of any, actually. Well, I think she did it well because, I mean, she was, like you said, a completely opposite character in season one. And that was how I was first introduced to Cheryl Lee was as Maddie, besides as dead Laura Palmer. And it shows you, too, just like how ingrained Laura Palmer, the character, is to the town of Twin Peaks. Because in seasons one and two, we don't meet Laura Palmer. She's dead. And yet... When the movie starts, I already feel like I know her. Mm. Did you feel differently? Of course, because I didn't know she was going to that roadhouse and taking her top off and dancing with older men. Like, we knew she was at One-Eyed Jacks, but that's a brothel. You're getting paid to do that, right? Well, she got paid at the roadhouse, too. Oh, that's right. Yeah. But still, like, just so casually dancing around naked. Like, I would not have thought about that about Laura Palmer in season one of Twin Peaks. But as far as her character, when she first walks on screen, she doesn't feel like a new character. She doesn't feel like a stranger. Yeah, no, you're right. It was very nice to just like start, like you said, we went from that mini episode as you're calling it. The beginning of the movie. Yeah, I was going to go, dun, dun. that's... <laughs> Law and order? <laughs> when you they're... know that, that clank, clank is the sound of cell door shutting, right? Clank, clank. Law For order. law and order, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. You were saying? I just like how it goes, like you said, right to her. Right to her walking to school and picking Mm. up fake Donna. (laughs) I like that you called her that. As a fan of the show, I really hate that they didn't get Laura Flynn Boyle back. I like Moira Kelly. I like her in The Cutting Edge. But the character of Donna is played by a new actress in the movie. And coming so shortly off the heels of the show. You know, the movie came out a year after the show ended. And to have one of the main actors replaced by somebody else. I think some of the reveals were less impactful because it wasn't the same actress. It may as well not be Donna. Yeah, it was. It definitely felt different. Plus, toward the end of the show Twin Peaks at the end of season two, Donna was a completely different person mm-hmm. because she was more innocent in the beginning and then she flipped it in the middle of season one and became this cigarette smoking. Well, when she's smoking the cigarettes, she is wearing Laura's sunglasses. And there's already another example in the show of Maddie pretending to be Laura, trying to be Laura, and look what happened to her. Yeah. And so you can kind of take from that that maybe trying to be Laura is the problem. Are you telling me that Donna's going to die in season three? Donna is not in season three. Oh, okay. Her mom is not in season three. There is one scene with Doc Hayward. Womp womp. Is it a spoiler to say that a character's not in it? No, because, I mean, I'm surprised you didn't say in a sense. That's been your Yeah, yeah, in a sense has been my answer for a lot of things, because no spoilers. But yeah, no, Donna's not back, unfortunately. Okay. I know Laura Flynn Boyle has had, I'll just say issues. She doesn't really act anymore. Maria Kelly played her in the movie. They could have brought her back. Real quick, just to double back with Leland versus Bob, the scene with the dirt under the fingernails where Laura is just petrified with fear. Right after that, you see Leland sitting with Sarah and his face just changing and becoming sad, and he starts crying, and he goes back to Laura and apologizes and says, I love you, princess. And you just rolled your eyes at me, but I think that's Leland. I think that's him taking control again, remembering, or being allowed to remember, you can say, by Bob, that he just terrified his family. And he's crying, because Leland, for the most part, is a nice guy. Sure, he kills someone and goes to you know prostitutes, but generally speaking, he's a nice enough guy, right? But he cries and he goes to Laura and, and, and apologizes and says that he loves her. I would like to point out that that is standard abuser behavior after 
Right, but Bob is assault. possessing him and Bob is not guilty. Unless you go with my perspective that it's Leland the whole time or at least partly Leland and he knows he's doing it. I guess we'll just have to disagree because Ray Wise, the actor who plays Leland, does such a good job. You can see on his face, you can see when the switch is being pulled. But there is darkness in Leland. Like when in the movie, when Laura gets on James's bike and drives away and Leland with the furrowed brow looks out the window, I don't think that's Bob watching. And I know we talked about whether or not Bob is jealous, but maybe Leland is too. But I think that's Leland who's upset that his daughter is going off with some guy on a motorcycle. That would mean that it was Leland that killed her. No, that wouldn't necessarily mean that, but I still think it was Leland who killed Jacques Renault. But it was after he looked out that window and saw them that he got in his own car and followed them. Mm -hmm. So if that was Leland getting in his car and following them, what was he planning to do? I don't know. Why did he club Dr. Jacoby over the head when he was spying on Maddie? Well, I hadn't had time to think about that because that's the show. Right. But was that <laughs> Leland or was that Bob? I need to rewatch. Because if it was Bob, why didn't he kill him? Um, well, why? Yeah, no, you're right. Why did he do that anyway? But I don't have yeah. time to think about that. Except <laughs> Dr. Jacoby does say that he smelled burnt engine oil, which is where we get that from because that comes back around as well. So if burnt engine oil, if that smell is the presence of an entity like Bob or Mike, then maybe it was Bob that hit Jacoby. I don't know. Where else has burnt engine oil come up? I don't remember the other times that somebody mentions the smell of burnt engine oil, but Jacoby is the one that initially provides that because he smells that when Jacques Renault was being killed. Ronette Pulaski identifies the smell from that jar that the log lady provides mm. a couple episodes into season two when Cooper kind of starts to put it all together. Do you want to say anything about the scene with Dale and the arm in the red room where the man from the other place introduces himself as the arm, the table with the ring on it, and... Cooper looks right into the camera and says, Laura, don't take the ring. What is there to talk about exactly? I don't really have any like interpretations of mm -hmm. that. I don't know how to... Just the timing of it. Cooper doesn't know Laura. Well, and that's another thing with the, the Annie in her bed. Right. The timing is all... Okay, that's fine. Weirdly, they did include Shelly and Leo in the movie. And that's one of the only times in the movie where they sort of cut to characters from the show just doing something. And I don't know why they included that little bit in the movie. I know Bobby calls Leo. Yeah. But still, we don't really need the whole sequence of Shelly getting berated, right? It just seems sort of out of nowhere. Might have just been to remind people that Leo's a piece of crap. Right. But of all the characters that they cut, that's what they left in? I don't yeah. know. We have the whole sequence where Donna goes to the pink room where she follows Laura to, well, it's the roadhouse, but mm -hmm. all the neon lights are on. And that really amazing, super repetitive song just goes on and on and on and gives you that sort of anxiety feeling as well. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. Like you see Laura crying watching Julie Cruz, and then you can see her change where she becomes sort of resigned to the person or life that she has created for herself and invites those two men over to pay her for sex. But you see her crying and vulnerable and she has that moment with the log lady where it's almost like breaking that sort of hard external layer we assume she's put up to protect herself. Mm -hmm. When those guys come over, she becomes angry and then accepts it and then sees Donna and becomes hard again. Like she is putting up an act. I'm so tough because here's Donna trying to be like me. I don't like that scene. Um, well, you don't or... like it as filmmaking or you, or you don't like it because it's uncomfortable? No. Well, and what continues after, just uh, uh, how Laura lets her friend be in that position. Mm -hmm. And then how once she sees Donna actually 
doing it. Like and Donna like, has her shirt off. And she's like having a good time, even if she's drugged unwillingly, which, by the way, Laura saw happen and didn't stop. But Laura freaks out, though, when she sees Donna actually, you know, being subjected to this other man. And you roll your eyes again. I'm sorry. But, no, it's habit. Human emotions are complicated. She is putting up this tough act and letting Donna go on for the ride. Like, oh, yeah? Come on. But the moment it actually happens, there's so many things in life where you think you want something and the moment you get it, you realize like, oh, crap, this was a bad idea. I should not have done this. That was the moment for Laura. She can sit back with Ron at Pulaski and do drugs and who cares. But when she sees Donna actually being you know, sexually touched, she freaks out and wants to protect her friend because multiple times in the movie, she cries to Donna and even screams like, you're my best friend, right? You know, you love me, right? She wants to protect Donna. If Laura Flynn Boyle from the show had played Donna, that scene would have been way more impactful. And so it just kind of comes off, I don't know, it's not the same. It's just not as impactful. And then it's also a bit of a cheat that because Donna was drugged, she doesn't remember, which is why on the show, the scene never comes up. That's a bit of a cheat. It felt like the Donna in the movie was a completely different friend, completely different person. Right. And there is a deleted scene with her and her parents, so Doc Hayward and her mom, and just seeing Moira Kelly with those two actors and not Laura Flynn Boyle, it's like, no, they're not your parents. This doesn't feel <laughs> right. I'm glad they didn't get someone who is like a lookalike because Moira Kelly and Laura Flynn Boyle look nothing alike. But there's a severe disconnect. It's emotionally, there's a disconnect because that's just not the Donna that we know. Yeah. If you go in having never seen the show, you won't care. Although I don't know why you would ever watch the movie without seeing the show because the movie spoils so many things. Well, and you wouldn't be able to understand half the stuff in the movie. You wouldn't know what the heck is going on. Arguably, that could kind of be the appeal. Almost like imagine walking into Avengers Endgame having never seen any Marvel movie, just being overwhelmed. Oh my I gosh. Think, honestly, I think that's kind of cool. I think that'd be an amazing sort of feeling to experience, <laughs> which is not an experience I can ever have. But yeah. if someone were to go into Twin Peaks Firewalk with me without seeing the show, I would very much want to know what that's like. I still don't know why Sarah sees a horse. There are videos on YouTube about it, but I still don't get it. Honestly, just another thing that doesn't make any sense to me. I know on television, they have to be careful, especially in the 90s, but in general on network television, because the show was on ABC, I believe. But you have to be very careful with censors and things like drugs. And so maybe it was as simple as white horse equals heroin. I mean, it could be anything, I guess. It could mm -hmm. be just where she goes when she's all drugged out. Maybe she's imagining riding a white horse on like a cliffside or something. After that is the great scene with James where she's with him and screaming at him and screaming in the woods. You kind of laughed, though, because when she gets off the bike, she screams crying, I love you, James, and grabs him. And it's just such a desperate moment. But you laughed. Because <laughs> she's so dramatic. I mean, come on, like, they arrive on the bike, she's like, oh my god, James, I love you. Then she flips him off, and she's like, I hate you. And then she's driving, he's driving her home, and she literally jumps off the bike, like, she probably scraped her knee or something. It was horrible, in my opinion, just to go like back. Like bad acting? No, no, no. Just to treat somebody that way. Just to, she went back and forth. I love so you, you, I hate you. Like, are you criticizing the film, or are you saying that... That you don't no. like her because of her character flaws as a person. Her character. I have a lot of problems with Laura Palmer. Well, that's Laura not Palmer. a cinematic issue. That's, <laughs> but that's how people are. They go back and forth. They say People say things they don't mean. No, I know. She's going back and forth between loving James and hating him for basically being a puppy. She could probably see a way out with him because he is not a drug dealer. He's not Bobby. 
And I think that scares are kind of like we were talking about when people finally get what they want and you realize, oh, crap, this is a bad idea. Same thing. Every time she starts to let herself think that she really loves him and she could be okay, the wall goes back up. I mean, sure, but and I just laughed at it because like, it's just dramatic. And, oh. and like, <laughs> she was, it was like the- I do the, not accept your answer. The, the bike didn't even stop and she like threw herself off the bike and then she literally screamed. Yeah, she screams because she then walks to her death. I laughed. I'm sorry. Like she literally, there was, there was nothing. There was no path. She just ran into the forest. So yeah, so she goes to her death, a really haunting, disturbing sequence with Ronette praying and an angel letting her go during this Mike, a very panicked Mike, which may or may not be Philip Gerard as well, because he looks very panicked when he's running through the woods. And so I don't know how much of it is Mike. I know Mike likes Philip Gerard, so maybe they were sort of sharing the body at the same time. But he runs to the train car, throws the ring in, Laura puts on the ring, gets killed. But we get to see Leland in the Red Room with Bob, and Bob's arm shoots blood onto the floor that vanishes in the Red Room. I don't entirely know what that means. The next direct scene is somebody close up eating creamed corn. Yeah, he gives the creamed corn to the arm, the the man from the other place, the little man. So doesn't that blood on the floor, which is the pain and sorrow turn into the cream corn right. somehow. But why are they demanding Bob give it to them if Bob took it fair and square? Like it's supposed to be Bob's? I guess I don't know what the system is as far as sharing, you know? Yeah. I'm wondering with the amount of grief Leland has in season one, if Bob is taking the pain and sorrow, because you see him reach up to Leland's stomach where there's like a blood stain and then it disappears and then he shoots the blood onto the floor. Maybe he's taking some of the pain and sorrow, essentially the murder out of Leland. And so, so much more of season one of his grief is real because he has even less awareness than maybe Bob would have let him know. So then can we go back to my theory that he was actually Bob at some points? If your theory is correct that he's removing that from Leland, then we see him in season one super distraught, Mm -hmm. unlike anything we saw in the movie before that happened. Maybe he took out a little bit of Bob or took out a little bit of his power. I don't know. I don't think I don't think Bob left Leland at all. I just think that he took some of the guilt, the blame. I, I don't think Leland is aware at all of what he did. And so I think his grief and crying is real. I don't know. Maybe that scene makes Leland more of an innocent in season one than than you might think. What do you think about Laura and the angel? Because the idea of angels, heaven, hell, were never a part of Twin Peaks. So the angel imagery is pretty unique to the movie. I don't even know if it's meant to be an actual angel. So maybe it's just what she imagines. But you do see Cooper with his hand next to Laura and she's smiling. The ending of the movie is Laura smiling smiling like she gets a happy ending. Well, she's crying happy tears. Was the angel weird for you? It's weird for me. I'll say it right now. I don't know why angel imagery was suddenly put at the end when that's never really been a part of it. Yeah, it was weird. Well, like we said before, she was going to die. She knew it was going to happen. Maybe that angel and her crying and being happy, crying happy tears was her accepting her death and accepting Mm -hmm. that it's over and releasing the pain that she felt through her life. The angel is what she is seeing and not necessarily an angel. But also she was in the red room. So what if they just made her see that to make her feel better 
They touch on this at the beginning of season three, so this isn't too much of a spoiler. But in the show, Laura says, in season two, Laura says in the Red Room, I'll see you again in 25 years. Yeah. What if the angel and her smile and her acceptance is only temporary? What if she has a 25-year time limit? Well, where is she going until then? Heaven? Or whatever heaven is, sure. I guess we can answer this question further after we watch season three. Well, that's all I had. Do you have any other ideas or questions about Twin Peaks Fire Walk with me? I do. What is up with that monkey? (laughs) Uh, Okay, okay. We've been talking for a while, so I don't want to go too far into this. But sound design is very important to David Lynch, going all the way back to Eraserhead. What you do and don't hear is on purpose. And so you did complain watching the movie, especially during like the David Bowie scene where you wanted subtitles because you couldn't tell. But not hearing clearly what they're saying, it's all on purpose. Mm -hmm. What you do or don't hear is on purpose. So the monkey, it's almost impossible to hear. But if you put on subtitles, the monkey says Judy. But we're not talking about Judy. There you go. (laughs) Do we learn about Judy in season three? In a sense. <laughs> now keep that in mind though, because you get to do what I have been referring to as time travel. You get to skip 25 years. The 25 years that I had to wait for season three, you only have to wait a week. It's kind of incredible what David Lynch put in this movie in 1992 that pays off uh, two and a half decades later. And it's kind of neat to think that 25 years later, they answer these questions. Well, I can't wait. And I'm sorry that you had to wait that long. All right. Well, then that wraps it up for now. I hope you enjoyed this spotlight review episode of Twin Peaks Fire Walk with me. As always, I'm your host, Aaron. I was joined today by Nikki. Hello. I mean, bye. Oh, my God. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not cutting that. (laughs) Thanks for listening.